Cinemaker, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode four, Fallen Angels episode, The Quiet Room from 1993. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And this is the first real misstep that we have here in Cinemakers. This is, <laughs> I don't want to call this garbage, but it's kind of garbage. What is this? Is this a television show? I looked it up, yeah. So this was a show that was on Showtime. Okay. I thought it was like an anthology film at first. No, it's a Showtime show that aired two seasons, one in 93 and one in 95. And I think it was about six episodes per season or something. It's an American neo-noir anthology television series that was produced by Propaganda Films. The series as a whole is set in somber Los Angeles right after World War II and before the election of John F. Kennedy. And each episode begins with a cool, and this is all direct quotes from Wikipedia, (laughs) each episode begins with a cool and restrained jazz score as the sultry character Faye Friendly explains to the audience what would develop in the episode. Her words are wistful, melancholic, and foreshadowed the pain to come. She's like the crypt keeper for this yes, show, yes. right? Like, I was getting that kind <laughs> yes. of vibe halfway through. I was like, whoa. Good idea for a show, though, like a neo-noir limited series that semi-connects together. I kind of like the concept, but this did not pan out well. What's really strange about this is that unlike the first three things we watched, Soderbergh did not write this, he did not edit this, and aside from Peter Gallagher, it doesn't seem like anybody he sort of worked with up till this point is involved here. Like, there's no Cliff Martinez music, there's just, it's, oh, man, it's just, there's nothing here aside from maybe one shot that I took note of that would give you any indication that this was Steven Soderbergh behind the camera. It's just, it's, it's so restrained, and it's just boring yeah it's it's extremely generic and and it feels like uh, more of some, kind of a director for hire thing you know like it doesn't feel like it has his stamp and i don't know why you would hire soderberg i mean like i said i wish you wouldn't hire soderberg and then not let him do his thing now maybe they did maybe i'm i'm just assuming that because he's got on to do even sort of work in this genre later on to much better effect sort of just assuming that it's that it's the producer's fault that it's showtime's fault that it's the writer of the show's fault that it, you know it can't be soderberg this is where my brain kind of goes of course maybe it is maybe this is just a you know uh, just as you say just a complete misstep for him but you're right it does not feel like his show at all yeah and the only thing i could keep thinking of was maybe he wanted to try the tv format like sort of a, a shorter format you know this is this is a, in full frame you know so it's sort of not what he's used to or not what it's not in the realm of feature so i thought maybe he did this to test those waters out a little bit and see how that felt and yeah i'm sure even at this point he had you know sex lies and videotape but after that those two other movies i'm not sure that was gaining him acclaim they were kind of he was coasting a little bit i feel maybe at this point and so i could understand taking a job for hire or not having total complete control over it uh stuff of that nature so that's sort of where my head was going at this it felt like someone who was doing something to sort of test himself i mean he's still doing period work here which which is tough he hasn't come back to present day uh since sex lies so um yeah i I don't know what else could be going on except like it, it is possible that he has a love of noir film which is evident in his previous work so like i mentioned i felt like this is an intriguing idea concept for a show, but whoever was um, behind behind the scenes, who was ever really in control, had it their way. I don't really get a sense of his style here. 
It is, oh man, like there's, the only shot that I saw that was really noteworthy was when Joe Montaigne and that lady cop were walking down that set of stairs, and it sort of follows them, like it's this cool, sort of swivelly tracking shot that looked cool, but the rest of it is just like, it feels like a commercial, like there's, especially maybe just the beginning, maybe just that opening with Fake Friendly. That felt like a perfume commercial, absolutely. (laughs) There's so many extreme close-ups and insert shots of just objects, and I'm like, what is going on here? Like, why is any of this happening it's so bizarre did you guys see who shot it who the cinematographer was it's emmanuel lubeski who you guys already talked about he did um a walk in the clouds but then went on to do things like uh itumama tambien and a bunch of malik stuff the new world and to the wonder and uh, song to song it's out now and then he did the revenant and gravity and birdman and oh Whoa. Burn After Reading, Children of Men. Like, this is a guy who is very good. <laughs> um, now, he may not be good at this, or, you, you know, this this feels like a mismatch for him a little bit, too, given the kind of handheld realism that he excels at in, in a lot of the other work. But it's, it's, it's a, sort, of, so it's sort of a departure that way. I would have to imagine that a lot of the blame goes to this script. I don't know how you make this movie. I, I, it, it seems... To, you know, to begin with a not very good concept and then be ex- executed rather poorly, <laughs> where, where a lot of really important action happens off screen and where, like, I, I don't really care what's happening to the characters long after I have guessed uh, or so long before I've guessed how it's all going to end. Um, it's just it's not even quite an exercise in style, right? Like, it feels like it could have been an exercise in style, but the style itself isn't even that accomplished. Yeah, I only made a note for one shot myself, and it was... Um the glass table shot i mean it's not a glass it's not an actual glass table but it's like shot from underneath the glass and he's throwing the money down and i thought that was really interesting i was like okay there's that to me felt like where the rest of this could have gone like noir needs to have dark shadows and high style it's noir you know like it's (laughs) it's highly stylized and this felt like a soap opera set in the 50s or something or in the 40s like this just felt like it lacked any kind of style to me so that was unfortunate it doesn't it didn't help the boring story either and (laughs) and maybe the it's not that the story's boring it's just what it tried to do as far as i could tell was make the audience play catch up like you would see something happen on screen and be like what the hell's going on and then the next scene someone would explain what's going on like for instance joe montagna would bust some guy for prostitution and you're like what's going on the next scene he meets up with this hooker feeding him info about you know reputable men that need to go that he should like check out and would get um sort of awarded for bringing in to justice and whatever like i guess that's the racket going on during this whole thing i'm not totally sure but that is to me like that that takes a certain tact and you need to set a lot of that up visually and you can't just present stuff like this and call it noir it doesn't fit right for me you know, it made me wonder if this is kind of the, the tyranny of narrative that they talked about last time in the video essay about King of the Hill. That This feels like someone oppressed by narrative. <laughs> this feels like someone who is sort of forced to tell this ABCD story in a um, sort of straightforward way. Whether he, whether it's because he can't figure out how to do it or, hasn't, or has, doesn't have time to figure out how to do it another way. 
um, or isn't equipped to do it yet another way because, you know, he's still a young guy. Like he's still a young filmmaker, you know? And I, and I feel like, you know, if this was the first thing he ever did, then we would look at it and say, oh, look, he's, you know, oh, he's playing in the noir space a little bit. And it's kind of it's kind of interesting. It's not very good. I can't wait till we get to better stuff. I think part of it is the fact that he came out uh, of the gate with such a command of, of cinema. And then this feels like, you know, just kind of dull. This just feels kind of dull it is, is sort of unfortunate. And I don't know why he did this, because there's a couple books that I've sort of been reading as we watch a movie and we talk about a movie, and neither of them has a chapter or a part of a chapter about this. The only thing that I read about this was, like I mentioned in the last episode, that he's just like, oh, I'm also doing this thing for Showtime or whatever, and he mentions this sort of offhandedly. But I don't know where this came from. I guess they must have just liked him and just like, hey, here's X amount of money for, I can't imagine was too much work in terms of time you don't have to edit it you don't have to write it just come in and do your thing and we'll slap your hot like up and coming name on the tv show and it's a win-win i don't know why else this would have happened but i can't see a more established director doing this i don't think because didn't we say like tom cruise and tom hanks also directed other episodes of this and alfonso Cuarón too right so like it's not i mean they're all big names now but I mean, Tom Cruise was obviously a, a superstar actor by that time, but, like, it's not like they're getting really huge. Like, they're not, like, Steven Spielberg is not doing one of these in 1993. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Tom Cruise isn't going on to direct anything after Right. This. Tom Hanks will go mm-hmm. on to have somewhat of a lackluster directorial career and do very safe films, but nothing like Alfonso Cuaron or anything. It's just bizarre. Another thing I kept thinking of was maybe he really wanted to work with Joe Montaigne. <laughs> Because he's like a great, great actor and he's known for doing a lot of mammoth work and just like, you know, he's a superstar of the stage and like his screen work's amazing and he's such a presence. Maybe I mean, if he if he was like, if this comes across your table and you're like, ah, what is, what is this? Like, what is worth doing this for? And it's like, well, to work with Joe Montana, sure. Like, there's a chance, you know, I could just do this nifty little noir thing and maybe try and, you know, work out like any of my mammoth issues over it and see, see how that gets me over. But that's just something that crossed my mind. The only thing I could find online in terms of motivation was uh, it was just speculation, but it's somebody who's doing a deep dive sort of movie by movie, kind of like we are into Soderbergh. And their, I, their sort of chronology of it is that so he comes out of the gate with Sex Lies and it's this big thing and then and it's very successful commercially and critically. And then he makes Kafka, which, he, which everybody knows is not going to be a big commercial success given how kind of esoteric a film it is. And then, then King of the Hill comes out, and that's sort of his attempt to do a, a more accessible film, and that, and that bombs. And about the time that that's bombing, he signs on or is, is, is about to start making this. And that their, their idea is that maybe he was in that – because there was a big thing in the early days of the, of the 90s uh, indie film movement in America to do sort of one for them, one for me, right? So you make one film for sort of studios, you make one film for the paycheck – and then you make one film that's your sort of your personal film. And if you can bounce back and forth between those two, you can maintain your sort of personal voice and also be able to make more films because you've been sort of commercially successful. So there's a there's a, a possibility that this was a, a this was a paycheck gig. We're about to move on to a film where he is has talked about being sort of checked out in terms of his own oh personal boy. attention making it right so if you if you think about this as maybe a a step toward the underneath that might be it might sort of explain you know that this is the point that he's going to sink to in order to reinvent himself into the filmmaker that he that he is to this day that like that makes sense and i can also see this as 
a way that like maybe Montini was already attached and he's like and they were like hey but you can fill this out with whoever else you want because he would get back peter gallagher from sex lies who would then also go on a star in the underneath he would get bonnie bedelia after die hard so that's cool right and then he has vanessa shaw who will return way way down the line in side effects it's all just i mean it's all just guesswork on our part and that thing that tobin you, you were mentioning online it just it's just after such i mean even though you guys didn't seem to love king of the hill I mean, to go from that to this, it's just such a step down. It's just a bummer. And also, I mean, I know this is not, we shouldn't judge it on this merit alone, but going from that gorgeous, you know, Criterion Blu-ray to Mm -hmm. this, you know, VHS upload on YouTube with Danish subtitles, like, it's just, that is not helping this either. I feel like if this was in really, like, like, decent quality, I mean, I know this is 20 years old, there's no, like, HD anything out of this anywhere, but if it was better quality, I think it would suit it better. But the fact that, like, the noir elements, like you were mentioning earlier, Mike, that the shadows and the coloring and stuff is muted by this sort of fuzzy-looking upload, that's not helping us or this viewing anything. It's not helping it at all. (laughs) Yeah, I I also wonder if we were watching this when it aired, you know, if we were fans of the show or if we were just watching it and had seen other episodes to compare this to. So we would know, like, maybe this is the best that there is. Maybe he had to look at all the scripts and this was the only one left. I mean, there's so many things to wonder about when it comes to this, but it's fun to wonder. But, (laughs) But it just, it's a little strange. Well, it's very strange, but what's weird about it is that like how like you guys were saying and how just by the book and how bland and all of that it is like i just i can't kind of get over that and how far he's gonna have to bounce back i guess that's what i'm getting at is like he he fell it seems like he fell far quickly like between this and what we're gonna get to next week which i've only seen parts of but to go like it, it's making me like King of the Hill all that much more because yeah. there's so much more there. If you're not there for the plot, there's like the look. If you're not there for that, there's the plot. I mean, there's stuff there to draw attention and to entertain, and I'm just not feeling it here. It's unfortunate. You know, the other thing that this movie demonstrated, this movie, this that this episode of television demonstrates is that that sort of 30s, 40s. Classical Hollywood film noir dialogue is really hard to write and really hard to pull off. You know, the, 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 there has to be sort of by nature, there's a lot of deceptive exposition in those movies. And, and this, this tries to do that, I think, and just sort of falls completely on its face, as, as far as I can tell. And I think people maybe think it's easy, you know, or that it's just not as, not as difficult to do, not as difficult to pull off. But I, I and Montaigne should be able to do it, right? Like he, this, the, the mammoth school should be, should be quite well suited to film noir. And Michael, I like what you're saying. This, this is a great idea for a show. I wish, I wish they, you know, that they, they were doing something like this, you know, that not at all like this, not, not the way this has been executed, but as an idea, I think it's a really good one. It just is, is probably much harder to pull off than some people realize. Yeah, not to really harp on the style much more, but I feel like if you're going to do a period noir, it needs to be black and white through and through for the most part. You could do like L.A. Confidential gets away with it because that's terrific movie but i feel like if you're gonna do neo-noir that to me rings like more of a modern bell like if it's going to be color it should take place today or close to maybe you know as far back as the 70s or 60s or something but that was throwing me off because i'm just not used to or acclimated to colored noir 
from the past. I feel like that was just sort of something that threw me and, you know, on top of everything else. It just didn't help. No, it did not. I am I'm already out of things to talk about with this. I mean, it's short. It's only 28 minutes long. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it. I mean, don't watch it, but if you want to. But is there anything else that we want to talk about with this? I mean, there's only one other little... I feel like there's only... Well, no, there's a couple. There's two more little side ventures that we're going to hit on this Soderbergh journey. One is coming up in three weeks. He did the concert documentary or concert movie for Yes from 1985, actually before Sex Lies. So we're doing that as a little bit of a bonus a few weeks down. And then there's that one, I want to say it's either K Street or Keen or Eros. Like there's one that's just sort of like a short film. But like this is one of the very few sidestep things that we have from his main filmography. And I mean, we're just, we're 0 for 1 so far. Yeah, the other smaller things that are, I don't know, but I've not seen the Yes concert, but in terms of his segment of Eros, or then when he gets into, which isn't a, 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 a single film, but three filmmakers make, it's sort of three, built of three short films, and he directs one of them. But this is the only one of his sort of non-feature film projects that is not of his own devising. This and the other episode of Fallen Angels that thankfully we can't find on YouTube... <laughs> I forgot there's did I two? forgot he did the second one. Yeah. Oh man. For the second season. I mean sure he he you know he signed up to do one a season as long as it ran or whatever the contract would have been, right? So thankfully we can't find that. But but everything after this in terms of the sidesteps, whether they're good or not, I'm not I'm not saying that they'll all be great, but they will all be of his own conception and I think that will make a difference. Because when we were originally, when Mike and I were originally putting together the idea for this podcast, we were sort of roughly calling it the Modern Auteurs podcast. And we really wanted things that, like, movies that were written and directed by a single person that you could see their style influenced over this. And it feels like, I don't, I mean, this this seems negative, but it also feels like it might be true that because he didn't write this, he doesn't feel connected to it. And so he's not invested in, like, creating original shots or, like, telling a, a visual story because it's not his script. And so... It's tough to do something like this to see where, you know, we have three movies up front where it's original screenplays or adaptations from things that he's so invested in from start to finish. And here, it's just like, here's a script, go make it. And you can just sort of see that, like, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't, this is, again, I guess, but like, it just feels like the passion isn't there. Like, he's not doing anything to really put his signature or his flair on it. Yeah, his his best stuff. If if he's not writing it, and he does not write, you know, alone a lot of his movies. But the best ones are ones that he's been involved in deeply in the way they're conceived and working with the writer. You know, uh, structuring the film and figuring out what the world is and creating the characters. You know, he's deeply involved in it, and it's you have to imagine he was not that involved in this. This feels like something he was just handed to say, "Go shoot this," and so he he sort of did. And I think if anything, this episode will at least prove that he is an auteur because <laughs> like, he's going to be doing the more interesting stuff when he's in total control like uh, some some filmmakers are out of control when they're in total control and they and they need to be reined in by studios and can't write and direct but i feel like this little 30 28 minutes or whatever we watched is like a lot of evidence to to the fact that like he's better when he's left to his own devices for the most part or at least is given like the control that he wants at the time because he was like a cog in the machine during this is i feel like that's why it's not up there with any of his better work right like in fact this might be his worst stuff 
it certainly is at this point, but you know, we'll find out. But I, that's basically what I'm getting the most here today is when he's given the freedom that he wants, he'll do great work. You know, what's, what's interesting that comes to mind as you say that is that a lot of the filmmakers who get free reign and then that causes problems for them are, you know, that, that's a common thing. And we may disagree about who those filmmakers might be who are given a lot of money and then, and then sort of jump the shark. But Soderbergh's always, one of the things that he, that he begins to do after the next couple movies is, is provide limits for himself. He is, finds ways to, to say, okay, I'm going to, between these big studio movies, I'm going to go make a movie that is, that I'm only going to make for a million dollars or $200,000 with just local actors and, or non-actors and a script by a playwright. And, you know, he's going to go do things like that to sort of keep him um, honest, you know, to keep him challenged in a way. So he's not just going to the craft service table and having pheasant under glass while the crew sets up the next shot or whatever, you know, like he's going to be a, he's going to, he's going to provide those limits for himself, even if they're not imposed from beyond. And if I can make one argument for watching this, and, and, and it's the only one I can make, is that I think to truly understand the arc of his filmography and the arc of his career you have to journey to the depths like this. Like you have to come to something that is, it's not that there's anything specifically wrong with it or, or bad about it. It's just, it's so deadeningly dull and he's just not invested in it at all. And that I think he had to come to this place in order to eventually get to where he's going. And I think that that's, I'm, I'm glad he made this because if he hadn't, he might've done it. He may have made three feature films that were this dull and then we'd, we'd never have heard from him again, you know? So, so that's my own, that's the only argument I can make for, for sort of watching this is to get a sense of the arc of his career. Yeah, I like that. But also counterpoint is just know that this exists and know that that's what sort of propelled his career and just be okay with not spending 28 minutes of your time watching this. But that is a good point. I like that. Any other last thoughts about Fallen Angels, The Quiet Room? Only that my last note on the page here is, this is horrid in its banality. That, that was my, that was my, that sort of was my summation. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good pull quote. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't really have anything else to add. I'm glad that we're not going on too many side quests during this adventure, you know, that, that the, um, this first one is seemingly going to be the worst one. So fingers are crossed that the worst is behind us. Yeah. So if you want to hear the other episodes that we've done for this or the other shows on our network, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or Twitter at cageclubpod and see all the shows that we've done, all the other episodes we've done. Lots of fun, free things for you to listen to and read at those three places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Anderson. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.